is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Privatising procurement is outsourcing the answer for defence. Securing Somalia, the country's top soldier, talks about building his army from scratch. Could drones spell the end for those magnificent men in their flying machines? And the 70th anniversary of the Battle of the Atlantic, the longest continuous military campaign of the Second World War. Radical changes to the way the Ministry of Defence buys military equipment were outlined yesterday in the Queen's speech at the state opening of Parliament. Measures will be brought forward to improve the way this country procures defence equipment, as well as strengthening the reserve forces. The Defence Reform Bill includes plans to make it easier for hardware to be bought without open competition. Reports last month suggested defence equipment and support, the body tasked with making the purchases, could be part privatised. Chairman of the Defence Select Committee, James Arbuthnot, says he has strong reservations about the plans. For example, what happens if, uh, if the company that is inserted into the management of our defence procurement is entirely foreign-owned? Uh, admittedly, the the GOCO, the government-owned contractor-operated company, w- would be would be government-owned. But nevertheless, the management that was brought in might be, for example, American. And might there be conflicts of interests there? Well, a little earlier, I spoke to James Blitz, defence and security editor at the Financial Times, and asked him why he thought the government was considering privatisation. The basic point is that what the government wants to do is to get some long-term stability in the, to the defence equipment budget. As you know, when the Conservatives came to office in 2010, uh, the equipment budget was very, very heavily overspent to the tune of around £46 billion, and that was because uh, there was a, a lot of commitment to buy equipment for which there was no underlying cash. And so what they think they can do by setting up this GOCO is get a lot more um, efficiency and good management into the situation, basically bringing in private sector managers to uh, to manage the, the process both of deciding what equipment the UK should have and um, trying to bear down on costs from contractors when it's finally bought. And why do they actually need to change the law to do this? Well, I think what they would need to do is, they haven't yet published the white paper, but I think they almost certainly have to change some of the statutory way in which um, defence equipment and support operates. They haven't gone into detail about why they need to change the law, but very roughly anything like bringing in a private sector company to run something like the purchase of British defence equipment uh, is, is almost certainly going to be... Um, a a very substantial change. No country has ever done it before and therefore it probably will need some kind of statutory framework. Is it a good idea? Well, that's a big question and it's one which hasn't yet been completely answered. The, The basic problem that you have in the UK and you have it in other countries is this, it's that when the service chiefs decide that they're going to to buy something, they basically tell ministers that the thing is going to cost a lot less than uh, you might think and it's going to be a lot more valuable than you might think in military terms. 
And what happens really is that the cost overruns only become apparent many, many years later, and we've seen that a lot with British defence equipment, as you know. And at the same time, very often the utility of some of this kit isn't quite as, as, as good as the um, as, as service chiefs make it out to be. So what you need, instead of having civil servants, who some think are a bit of a soft touch on these issues, instead of having civil servants facing the service chiefs, you have private sector professionals who know the industry a great deal better and are really able to say to the service chiefs, look, do you really need this stuff? Do you not appreciate it's going to cost a great deal more than you say? And who then turn round once a decision is taken and bear down on the costs which companies like BAE Systems and other defence contractors are supplying. So that's the thinking behind it. But it raises a lot of questions. Will it save money, do you think? Well, it depends. I mean, I think the first thing that Philip Hammond has got to do, he's publishing a white paper in the next four or five weeks, uh, and then there will probably be legislation next year. He needs to explain a lot of things about how this is going to work. Who is the private sector contractor who manages this going to be? How will he eliminate um, conflicts of interest between the defence company which is managing this and the defence company's own interests in the business? What are the terms on which it will operate? Will it simply be to, to cut costs at all times or will it have to factor in the, the long-term strategic and security needs of the UK? Uh, and, of course, who's accountable, I suppose. What's that? And, of course, who's accountable. Exactly. And issues like who, who is accountable, who actually takes the final decision on what equipment is bought. Will it be ministers or will it be the GOCO? There's a lot of issues that need to be ironed out. Philip Hammond and Bernard Gray, the head of defence materials, certainly think that it will save money and it's a way to really... Make, give a structure to the achievements they've had in terms of putting the equipment budget back into balance. But there's a lot of people who also say, frankly, you could just change a lot of the ways in which DE&S operate to make it more efficient, uh, which would actually save money as well. So I think the jury's still out. We have to see what the white paper says, and we then have to see what the legislation says. But it is certainly a big issue to watch in defence in the next few months. That was James Blitz, Defence and Security Editor at the Financial Times, speaking to me a little earlier. Well, I'm joined now by BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Hello. That point that James raised, can procurement be fixed without outsourcing to a private contractor? Never. Why? It's, it's taken so long to get this together. And one of the reasons is, is, is commitment. Think about it. If you want something, you, a concept you have that we're going to need a new type of ship. It probably takes about 15 years from the concept to actually getting something into service. In the meantime, you've got guys, certainly from the military, who go to the MOD, take, uh, join the department. They're there for two or three years, then they move on to another department. Somebody else comes in and says, OK, well, technology has moved on a bit further. We want to add this to it, etc." Bernard Gray, that James was talking about, the, the head of procurement, and and Mr. Hammond, Philip Hammond, are probably the best double act the MOD's had on this ever. And they start from this premise. What to buy in future has to be based on what government wants the military to do. Now, that's very, very, very difficult to sort of sort out. If you've got the companies involved, and I don't quite buy James Arbuthnot's idea that you mean about foreign companies. Most companies are foreign companies now. They're sort of mixed, and mixed companies anyway. If you're going to do that, you want everybody saying, not so much to the military or to anybody else, this is what we've got. 
this is how it's likely to be developed. Is this what you want it to do? And then come up with the one question. Do you think you're always going to have to fight the first 11? Because so this you... stuff will give you a basically good defence system, and that's what Gray and Hammond have worked out for themselves. So do you think the outsourcing will be the solution, that it will bring some kind of continuity and an independent aspect to it all? If you take on a company, if you bring in people and stick with them, and it's one of those things which it's not necessarily happened before. But you see, the defence industry has sort of shrunk in, a, in many ways. There aren't that many companies that aren't owned by BAE Systems, for example. They seem to own about sort of two-thirds of it. But then BAE Systems works with French company, Talis, etc. So that's the foreign element dealt with. And so you can get that continuity which has failed thus far. The one lot you have to keep control on frankly, the chiefs of staff and the colonels and the, and, and the generals who keep saying, oh, by the way, we're just shifting the goalpost a, a, a bit because there's a new bit of equipment we've read about in Aviation Week. That is rubbish, always has been rubbish. Nobody's got a grip on it. This way, you could get a grip on it. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Delegates from more than 50 countries and international organisations have been meeting in London this week to discuss Somalia. They've been looking at how to improve security and financial management in the country which has endured two decades of civil war and is struggling to defeat Islamist militants al-Shabaab. Despite a partial lifting of a UN arms embargo, the East African state hasn't been able to buy any weapons because it can't afford them. General Dahir Adan Elmi, Commander-in-Chief of the Somali National Army, was part of the delegation in London this week. BFBS reporter Laura Hawkins asked him what he thought the next step should be for the country. Well, its mission today is actually we take it with the support of international community. We have we want to create a small army that can take the security of the nation, of the country, and the needs and defeat Al Shabaab. That is the main issue. That can, but the, the army, that army needs. A lot of assistance, support, logistically, training, militarily, all that they need in training in order to defeat or to come up with that idea. Now, you, you do need this national army, and that's going to be built from scratch, really, isn't it? We do need a national army, and almost 100% it, it comes from scratch. We have the manpower, the manpower, but that manpower needs training, weapons, so, and, and loyalty, and they are loyal to the country, and they need actually really support for the international community in order to create the army. Do you have facts and figures and the number of soldiers you would like for the army in the future, and how are you going to train the army? Who will be doing that? If you look to Somalia, it's, it's, Somalia is not, a, it's, it's not a big country, but it's a big enough in, but we're trying to at least create a small army, which is about 28,000. We believe that the, the next four years, that 28,000, if we support them and, and train them, they can have real support and security in the nation. That's what we're trying to initially to have at least 25 to 28,000 to create the security for the nation. Yet again, who's going to be training the army? Which soldiers will be doing that? Well, the, so far we have European Union, the training, we have a lot of offers, but the, the actual thing that we have is European Union who trains Somali army in Uganda, 
and we're trying to move them back in the, in the, in the country. So this year, we, I think the first unit will be trained in, in Somalia. Now, when do you think you'll be able to stand on your own two feet? Because obviously you have help from the AU at the moment. We have helped so many other countries, especially AU, for training. And we are planning the, the plan for us. And future is the next four years, we may be able to take in our own security in our hand. The UN arms embargo was lifted two months ago. What's changed since then? The UN arms embargo gives us actually a great hope. A great, really great, and, and, and we are taking a momentum for it because this is momentum to create an army that can secure the nation, rearm them, train them. Before that, we didn't have that luxury. We just have empty hands. But now we have opportunity, and we want to profit for that opportunity. That was General Almy speaking to our reporter, Laura Hawkins. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the mother of one of the four soldiers who died at the Deep Cut Army Barracks tells us why she's pushing for a public inquiry. And the 70th anniversary of the Battle of the Atlantic, the longest continuous military campaign of the Second World War. Could the increased use of drones in modern warfare mean the end of those magnificent men in their flying machines? Last month, the MOD announced the RAF is operating armed drones from Britain. It's led some to wonder whether the F-35 will be the last manned fighter aircraft to be bought by Britain. Will English has more. Drones or unmanned aerial vehicles play an ever greater part on the modern battlefield. From humble origins of little more than a remote-controlled plane for spotting artillery, things have gone rather high-tech. Of the estimated 500 drones currently in use, most are small battlefield systems for peeking over compound walls or looking just a few miles ahead. But there are bigger, long-endurance systems too. The Royal Artillery's new Watchkeeper system replaces the interim Hermes 450 as a long-endurance, high-altitude I-Star asset. But more advanced still are the RAF's Reapers. The size of a small fixed-wing plane, these can circle high in the skies for hours to build up a pattern of life before dropping bombs or firing precision missiles. Until recently, 39 Squadron's pilots flew them from Nevada. Now, though, after substantial investment and a doubling of the Reaper fleet to 10 aircraft, they're flown by 13 Squadron from RAF Waddington in Lincolnshire. There are plans to further expand the role of UAVs. The experimental and fully autonomous Tyrannis system is designed to drop bombs and win dogfights against real-world pilots. Will English reporting. Well, let's speak now to Douglas Barry, Senior Fellow for Military Aerospace at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Hello, Douglas. Do you think the F-35 will be the last air-crewed combat jet? Oh, no, perhaps I'm a bit of a Luddite, but I actually believe that the... Uh, the inventories of um, the world's air forces will remain mixed between manned and unmanned for uh, several decades to come, at least. I mean, the, the US has already begun to think of a, a manned combat aircraft beyond the F-35, um, a sixth-generation platform that would come into service sometime in the 2030s or 2040s. What kind of RAF will we have in 15 years' time? I think it'll be an RAF with fewer fast jets, fast jet numbers will come down, you will begin to see an increase in unmanned systems in the inventory sometime between 2030 and 2040 the general view is that there'll be perhaps about a third of the systems will actually be unmanned within within the Air Force inventory. 
Christopher Lee, drones are currently being used by the RAF in Afghanistan, mainly for surveillance. Will they still need them when British forces leave the country? Um, drones have one particular advantage, uh, un, you know, literally unmanned and relatively uh, active. Um, and they don't have to do the job, or you don't need such a large aircraft. Let's say the reconnaissance version of an F-35, you actually don't need that. I mean, industry, American industry, one of the reasons they're building into the new generation is because you know, that's what industry does. It builds uh, into the next system, and you need to get in touch with force projection, etc., etc. But drones, you take with you. And that is the great advantage of it. And yet, Douglas Barry, that unmanned aspect of it is the problem that brings about the moral arguments about using machines to take lives when they do. I think there are a number of differing or different issues here. The, 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 the notion of killing at distance, remote killing, if you like, is, is nothing new. Um, the bow and arrow was a method of remote killing. You wanted to get yourself as far away from the opponent as possible. Unmanned systems just continue this trend. Um, The idea that this somehow is a game changer in terms of how wars are are fought, I I don't actually think is correct. Why is that? Because, I mean, the legal aspect of it is far from sorted, isn't it? And the US is using legal opinion to allow it to continue to use the drones, and yet the, the matter is far from settled. I think there are a number of ethical and legal issues which have got to be fully, fully explored, um, and there has to be kind of common, there has to be a consensus develop over the use of such systems. Uh, part of the problem is, of course, these, these systems have only new, been used in the armed sense since the beginning of this decade. I mean, the first actual combat operation with an armed UAV was in 2002. That's 10 years ago. We, we talk about the, the UAVs as being this big development in aviation. What do you see as the next big thing, Douglas? I think you're going to see more more unmanned systems, more complex unmanned systems. I, I think the, 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 the interesting issue in, in unmanned systems, of course, is the question of autonomy. How far down the autonomous path will you actually go? And I think that's where the legal, ethical and moral issues become uh, m- much, much more difficult because obviously... While you have a person involved in the engagement, that is somebody effectively controlling what's happening with the unmanned system and what it engages, that's acceptable. If you move to a situation perhaps in 20, 30 years' time where the platform itself is is a decision-maker, that that does... Is that possible, do you think? It's conceivable. There's no reason why, in terms of software and artificial intelligence, the, the technology is certainly on the horizon... There is, a, there is a significant question mark, certainly within things like the laws of armed conflict, whether that kind of engagement would be legal or not. And I think that's one of the areas that you'll see continually revisited as, as, as militaries use this, this, these systems and try and ensure that they remain within legal parameters. All right, Douglas Barry from the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Thanks for your time today. This is BFBS. SIGREP. For the families of four soldiers who died at the Army's deep-cut barracks between 1995 and 2002, a huge question mark still hangs over the reason for their deaths. All had gunshot wounds, and yet open verdicts were recorded on all but one of the dead, who's said to have committed suicide by shooting himself five times in the chest. Now the mother of one of the soldiers has written a book, A Mother's War, to push for public inquiry and, in her words, fight for the truth. Yvonne Collinson-Heath joins me now. Hello, Yvonne. Thank you for your time today. Uh, Tell us what you know about your son, James Collinson's death. Um, 
that is the, the whole issue. I don't know very much about it, to be honest. Um, I know that he was a happy lad on the day that he died. He was with me up until two o'clock that afternoon and we dropped him off at Deep Cut Barracks. He was looking forward to the future. He was looking to buy a car, get insurance quotes, just passed his driving test. And within eight hours, he was found dead. And he had a gunshot wound to his head. He did have a gunshot wound to his head, but he had not been allocated a weapon. According to Deep Cut Local Rules, he was too young to carry a weapon. And in fact, we had discussed that very morning about how, you know, was, was he safe to be out in Gargi without a, a loaded gun? And he laughed at me and said, oh, Mum, for goodness sake, it's the British Army, not the Boy Scouts. There's somebody watching your back all the time. Don't worry, it's perfectly safe. And those words rang in my ears for a very long time. Subsequent reports have criticised Deep Cut, one finding clear evidence of foul abuse of trainees. Did your son ever tell you anything was wrong? He didn't, no. Um, he wasn't the type to be bullied. Um, but having had said that, I do. there's a part of me wonders if that final night was some kind of attempt at bullying went on that James was resistant to. Um, he certainly wasn't a shrinking violent. He, He'd suffered a little bit of bullying at school, but he'd stuck up for himself, and I'm sure he would do the same again if anybody else attempted to bully him. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense to me at all. There was an open verdict recorded on his death. There's been an independent inquiry. What do you think a public inquiry could achieve? I think we need a public inquiry so that we can look at all four of the deaths under the same umbrella in a public arena. Every, every inquiry we've had so far have looked at things individually. Every review's looked at things individually. Um, we had a Surrey Police investigation which looked at the two deaths in 2002 and the two in 1995 as two separate entities. We need to look at all four together and just to see exactly if there's any pattern and, you know, who's accountable for these deaths? Yvonne, if I could just read you the MOD statement that it gave us today. It says its thoughts remain with private James Collinson's family. Given the extensive investigations that have taken place and with the improvements that have been made to the training environment since the Deep Cut Review, we're not persuaded of the case for any further inquiry into the sad events which occurred at Deep Cut. What is your reaction to that? Well, Nicholas Blake reviewed um, all, all four deaths. He's the one person, I think, that did actually look at them. And his recommendation was that the Army needed to have an independent omnibusman or hold a public inquiry. They did neither. So his recommendations, both of which were shelved, and I would like to know what they have to say about that, because they, they have not learnt the lessons. We still hear reports of bullying. We still hear reports of sexual harassment going on. And they do nothing about it. Now, you've poured over the facts as you know them over the years. Are you any closer to the truth, be it a prank, an accident, foul play, as to why your son died? Well, what I have learned over the years is that no one seemed to wish James dead. He seemed to be a very popular lad. Um, and I know that he had no reason to take his own life. So by the conclusion of that I come to is that it was some kind of prank that had gone wrong, um, perhaps some initiation ceremony. He was only in there six weeks and there was young lads out there still of school age with no supervision and loaded weapons. It was a tragedy waiting to happen. 
All right, Yvonne Carlson Heath, author of A Mother's War, One Woman's Fight for the Truth Behind Her Son's Death at Deep Cut. Thank you for your time, and that book is out today. Christopher Lee, um, the as you said there, Yvonne, um, that independent report called for a military ombudsman. Instead, an independent service complaints commissioner was appointed, largely criticised as having no powers, no real teeth. Why, all these years later, is there no military ombudsman? I think that's largely because the the military resisted at the very highest level. Uh, The difficulty is actually channeling complaints or getting information through an ombudsman. An ombudsman might be approached through, for example, an MP or, or to an MP. It's the way you actually get into the system. And one of the things, that one of the huge problems that Deep Cut has thrown up, and it's not just Deep Cut, there's bullying throughout the all three services is this the uh, military has dealt with this thing in the past and that is the groan that you get from the campaigning groups they say the military should not have an independent hand to it and it happens in the United States for example as we know where military bullying is on the up and the problem being always is that the military comes into a closed shop on this matter and an ombudsman might, might, in a very cumbersome way, be able to sidestep that. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Commemorations have begun marking the 70th anniversary of the Battle of the Atlantic, the longest continuous military campaign of the Second World War. During the height of the war, German U-boats targeted ships transporting much-needed supplies between North America and Britain. Yesterday evening, a service was held at St Paul's Cathedral in London. Other events are planned this month in Liverpool and Londonderry. Uh, Christopher, can you tell us a bit more about it? Uh, Britain, of course, is a tiny island that is reliant enormously on basic things such as oil, food supplies, etc. Um, There isn't a system of actually bringing them safely to the United Kingdom mainly because the German has a very efficient U-boat and surface ship uh, attack system. Something like 35,000, some people say 40,000, 45,000 merchant seamen went down largely in the Atlantic between 1939 and 1943. In fact, it's interesting, those seamen, because when they used to go ashore in Bristol, Liverpool or wherever, they go ashore because they didn't have a uniform. They go ashore in civilian clothes, they used to get beaten up, they used to get spat upon, the people refused to, uh, to feed them. And why them was it they were treated in such a way? Because they're not in uniform, it was assumed that they, they were dodging the war effort and yet 35, 45,000 of them died in the most terrible, terrible circumstances. How long does it take them to get the respect they deserve? Uh, it's taken them really until the last sort, of, uh, last sort of five, six or seven years. And in fact, that's largely to do with because, of course, the merchant navy uh, is very, very rarely seen. Now, if you think about it, I mean, this weekend, for example, in the Pool of London, incidentally, HMS Illustrious, the Royal Navy's uh, aircraft carrier, is going going to be in London, probably the last time a Royal Navy carrier will be seen in London. Uh, And yet that's very visible because we talk about HMS Illustrious, HMS Edinburgh, HMS Blythe that are going to be there. Nobody talks about merchant ships that are going to be there. If you talk about merchant ships, it's usually about cruise ships, and that's usually because somebody's got a bellyache on them or something like that. That's the only time you get the news. And so the merchant navy is never in the public eye. Christopher, let's uh, have a look ahead now to next week. Obviously, there's going to be news from Pakistan because of the election that's taking place on Saturday and and violence even before uh, the vote's been cast. Absolutely uh, tremendous. I mean, it's astonishing. 5,000 in a National Assembly seats, uh, 11, 
12,000 uh, provincial uh, people standing, 600,000 troops and police needed to police this election. Um, the uh, Taliban are trying to stop all the secular parties getting themselves elected. And there's a kidnap of the son of the former Pakistan Prime Minister that's come in the news today as well. Uh, Jalani's son has been kidnapped, Ali Haidar, because he is part of this secular thing. Uh, i tell you something else that's happening is uh, Nawaz Sharif, who is likely to be the next Prime Minister, has said he wants to end all the cooperation against, uh, with the United States against mm. the war on terrorism. The other thing that's going to happen is that General Kayani, who is the head of... He's sort of a David Richards, the CDS of the uh, Pakistan uh, forces, he's going to be in NATO on Tuesday. And he's going to be telling the Joint Chiefs of Staff there, this is where we go in the future. This is the problem of Afghanistan. This is the problem you face because we're going to change the way that we try and take on Taliban and stabilise the region. Extraordinarily important. We've had news on Syria this week. As we were saying last week, there was going to be some kind of rapprochement between the US and Russia on coming for some kind of deal towards peace in Syria. And the Prime Minister, David Cameron, is heading to Russia, isn't he, this weekend? Yeah, he's trying to pick up some of the glory on this one, frankly. <laughs> uh, yeah, he is. I mean, it, what's happened is, 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 is that Kerry, the American uh, Secretary of State, the equivalent of Foreign Minister, and uh, Sergei I I I Ivanov, the, the Russian... They've got together and they said, listen, we, we, well, the only way you can get, get to this is by the end of this month, for example, have a conference, bring the Syrians along, mm. bring most importantly the opposition along and sit down and see where we go from here. You don't know where you're going. We've got no master plan, but at least let us at least talk. Um, David Cameron go along there, uh, go to uh, Moscow next, uh, next week and he'll say, yeah, I agree with that. I bet they'll be relieved. All right, and there we must leave it. Thanks for all our guests today for their time, and to you, Christopher. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter, and you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye for now. This is SITREP on BFBS. Digital radio, FM and satellite TV in the UK.